For Friday, November 1st, this is The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully. The U.S. military responds to terror and rogue threats every single day. But are we prepared for the next big defense challenge? The growing complexity of cyber warfare and the very real threat of artificial intelligence. Jacqueline Schneider is a graduate of Columbia University, an Air Force veteran. She's now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. We cover it all in our conversation, which took place on the campus of Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Jacqueline Schneider, as you look at the U.S. military and the challenges we face, the 21st century challenges, I want to go back to something that you wrote a year and a half ago. You said, quote, we need to be thinking about what no one else is thinking, specifically with cybersecurity and cyber warfare. Can you elaborate? Yeah, I think um, a lot of the challenges um, for the U.S. military and cybersecurity is partly that we've been so good at conventional war planning um, and conventional campaigns. And so the first way to think about cyber when it comes to the military and it comes to warfare is how does this plug in directly with how we bomb things, um, how we conduct conventional campaigns. Um, and I think when cyber kind of came on the scene, that was how people were thinking about the integration of cyber cyber operations. Um, but the U.S. is evolving um, and thinking more about how to use its military assets and its cyber military assets in order to defend the homeland, um, what Cyber Command calls defend the nation, um, and then to think about kind of how cyber operations affect asymmetric conflict and affect um, operations that would be conducted underneath what we would think of as a threshold of either declared war or um, thresholds of violence. Um, And so looking at not only how cyber operations would influence our decisions um, in that contestation zone, but also kind of how we can use our cyber capabilities to um, coerce, degrade, or change our adversaries' behaviors short of a full-out conventional conflict. To that point, as somebody who has taught at the Naval War College, Uh, attended Columbia University, as you look at the U.S. military academies, private institutions like Stanford University, are these schools, are these institutions doing enough to train people like yourselves for what we face in the future? This is a real problem for anybody who's looking at cybersecurity for the U.S. government or the Department of Defense. So in general, there is a deficit of cybersecurity talent. That goes for whether you're going to the government, the DOD, or the private sector. And so then the government and the DOD are competing against top institutions, top companies like Facebook, Google, Amazon, for this cybersecurity talent that's a very small group of people. Um, And then the U.S. government has kind of bureaucratic problems with bringing these people on board. Um, We have really bad human resources uh, IT. We, if, you, if anybody's ever tried to get a job through USA Jobs, they know it's very difficult to kind of even push through the technological uh, impediments to joining the, the U.S. government, much less the U.S. military. Um, and then the U.S. military um, has been running into a problem because uh, the cybersecurity talent that exists sometimes doesn't um, fulfill its normal kind of physical requirements. So there's a real balance that we're having to make between um, individuals who are really skilled technically but maybe couldn't carry a 50-pound rough sack two miles. Um, and understanding kind of what are the requirements we should put on these people, um, are those cultural limitations 
keeping us from getting some of the top talent. And then kind of the low, larger question is like how much of this talent is needs to be uniformed service members um, that are kind of out in the battlefield or how many of these people can be civilians and then what is the line between an armed combatant in cyberspace and a civilian in cyberspace. Which leads me to a paper that you wrote that uh, had some controversy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> titled Blue Hair in the Gray Zone. So yeah. first summarize your findings and then respond to those who said this is not going to work. Yeah. So um, when I was at the Naval War College, we had this Future Force gallery, and it had all these uh, machines in it. And I would walk through, and I think, I mean, we're thinking a lot about, like, what Star Trek, you know, um, machine we're going to have, but we're not thinking about what those people look like. And the more and more that I've been working in this field, the more I think that sometimes our perceptions of what a military warrior looks like um, aren't the same as the the actual skills and the job sets that are occurring in future war. And so future war is becoming more and more technological. And so the question becomes, do we really need people that look a certain way, that have um, short hair um, that's normally colored um, or that, you know, can bench a certain amount or do a certain amount of push-ups? Um, and do we instead need to think about kind of people who may look different, you know, blue-haired folks, I mean, intentionally, it's a bit of a polemic, so you're intentionally trying to push some of the buttons, um, but really trying to understand kind of what about the way we think about the force of the future is just a cultural representation, representation of what the military thinks it looks like, and what is us actually thinking about what the future of warfare looks like, and then looking for the talent that fits that future of warfare. Now, I got a lot of pushback on this. A lot. Yeah. Not surprisingly, the Marines, you know, um, because a lot of the services, and I think especially with the Marines, their identity is based a lot on um, physical fitness and discipline. And there is a proxy between somebody who is physically fit and a perception that they're more or less disciplined. Um, and so I would say that um, in my experience, physical fitness isn't always a proxy for discipline. And if I think about the missions of the future, especially in the cybersecurity realm, and I think about um, the type of people that I would want, um, I would want people who are technically extraordinarily competent and who are able to come to work and complete that mission set. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily somebody who's physically fit. Um, that said, we haven't done a lot of studies on this. So when I was in these major debates, those who were really upset didn't have a lot of empirical evidence to support their claims, and I didn't either. You know, this is actually the only work I've ever done that is completely polemical. Um, usually I base it on some sort of data and research I'm working on. And that's actually something I think the U.S. government and the U.S. military need to invest in. They need to understand what is the talent that's out there versus the talent that I have in, my, um, in the DOD, and then what's keeping the really great talent from coming into the DOD. If it is a physical fitness problem, if we go back and look at the people that are leaving the DOD and we say, wow, we have a lot of physical fitness attrition and they're usually from our more technologically savvy um, personnel, then we should go back and think about, okay, maybe this is a risk we're willing to take as people who are less physically fit. But right now, um, both sides are kind of talking at each other and not doing the hard work and the study that you need to do to think about, like, where should our investments really be and what kind of manpower do we really need to have? But as you know, you served six years in the Air Force, and so you understand the structures, the rigors, the discipline, and often the bureaucracy. And we see that in Washington at the Pentagon for those who work there. So how do you break through that to change the thinking? It's almost like you're trying to maneuver an aircraft carrier to make some pretty sharp turns. It's not that easy. Yeah, I think that's been surprising to me is how rigid some of the thinking can be. 
But there are real advocates for innovative thinking. And if you look at what the services are doing, they are trying to think about some innovative ways to solve this problem. They've introduced direct commissioning programs. Um, they have new um, accepted cyber service for the civilians. It's supposed to kind of bypass some of the USA jobs technological bureaucratic impediments to bringing people on board. So I think that there is at least kind of a recognition that there's a problem. And then after that, it's just going to be, um, I think it's going to be the young folks um, who are increasingly vocal, um, who are able to to create change from the bottom up. If you look at organizations like the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum, which is a, a group of people that were like CGOs, you know, company grade officers, and early field grade officers who came together to think like, how can we be innovative within the DoD? And I think um, empowering bottom up innovation, not building an entire innovation command, which is what the Army did, but instead looking at um, these really interesting and young voices and thinking about how to integrate these. Not not thinking of them as kind of outliers, but instead, this, these are really interesting ideas. Let me remind our listeners that we're talking with Jacqueline Schneider. She is an Air Force intelligence veteran, now serving as a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution on the campus of Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. One of your colleagues is former Defense Secretary General Mattis. Have you had any conversations with him about this? You're smiling. No, but I think he would disagree with me completely. Um, just based on the personnel um, actions that they took while he was Secretary of Defense. And I think um, I think a lot of this comes from where you sit, right? He was a Marine general. And if you think about the missions the Marines conduct, the vast majority of them do have a large physical fitness element. But if you're sitting from where I came from, which is the Air Force, um, I had, when I was in the Air Force, I had... Um, cybersecurity experts who worked for me, and they spent most of their day behind a computer. But they contributed to the mission that the Marines were conducting in Afghanistan by doing remote work. So I think sometimes it depends on where you sit. And I'm, I'm looking forward to having that conversation with him. Um, I think it'll be a really interesting one, hopefully one with um, uh, just a little bit of alcohol. So. <laughs> <laughs> so what worries you the most? What concerns you as you focus on the cyber threats? And I guess in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about the trade war with China and what we all know is China stealing intellectual property and understanding how social media in this country works. Is it China or are there other threats? So I think um, I think the number one threat to U.S. democracy is the threat of cyber-enabled information operations. Which is what? Uh, the use of social media like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the series of different social media applications to um, create divisive um, divisive emotions to pull apart the U.S. Um, population. Foreign governments like the Russians who are um, coming in and meddling with the way the U.S. US populace views its policies, views its politicians. And there was a belief, an underlying belief in the Obama administration, especially as the Arab Spring was happening, that the proliferation of information would necessarily be good for democracy. So information was good with a capital G. With the Russian interference in the election, we see that that's changed. And now democracies are coming um, under attack by something that we had always thought was going to be good for democracy. And we haven't really reconciled how democracies can survive in this, in, this information world. Um, and I think that's, that's probably the biggest threat. Now, is that the DOD's role to combat that? 
on most levels, no, right? But there are some um, examples of operations that the DOD is doing to try and decrease our adversary's ability to do that. So um, a great example is Joint Task Force Ares, which was against ISIS. Um, General Nakasone has talked a lot about the operations they conducted against the Russians in the, the previous election campaign to try and decrease their ability to access social media, to try to influence them to not access social media. And I think that's really what um, the cyberspace defense strategies concept of defense forward is. It's using the DOD and their ability to conduct offensive cyber operations to enable to make sure that our adversaries don't have the ability to use their own networks to conduct these types of operations. So as you look at other countries, are there places that are doing things that we should be doing, either modeling or copying their successes? That's a really good question. Um, in some ways, our, our, some of our Five Eye allies are more forward-leaning than us. If you look at the way the um, Australians and the British have thought about the, um, the use of cyber operations, they've actually been a little bit more forward-leaning, a little bit looking more like what um, Defend Forward could be. And so I think there's a lot we could learn about the risks they've been willing to take and where they've restrained themselves. Um, I don't think that we should necessarily adopt the Russian model. There's this part of me that still does think that information is a good with a capital G. And I don't want to see the United States get into the business of conducting the same kind of information operations that the Russians have done, mainly because we're not nearly as good at it. Um, so I don't, I don't think we should learn from the Russians. But I think that um, the Russians have taken it upon themselves to set norms by taking actions. And that's something we can learn from because um, we have in the past thought that we could create norms through institutions like the UNGGE or through um, saying what our norms are. But sometimes the actions or the ac that we take and the actions that we don't take set the norms of behavior more. And so what I would like to see from the U.S. is to be more of a norm entrepreneur um, because the Russians right now, I think, are probably the leading norm entrepreneur in cyberspace. As so much of this now, this information, the Pentagon information, migrates to the cloud, if you could explain something that I came across and that I know you're familiar with, the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, known as the JEDI program. What is that? So this is a, um, a, a request for proposal, which is kind of a potential contract that the, is being led by the DOD CIO office to um, migrate a huge amount of Department of Defense data into one um, cloud. And that cloud will be provided by one service provider. So instead of the DOD building their own cloud or using multiple cloud providers, um, this contract is focused at one. The scuttlebutt is that that one will likely be Amazon Web Services. That has caused a lot of consternation, obviously. Um, and so that particular contract has come up against a bunch of... Um, legal issues to actually closing it out. Um, but the, the overarching idea is the consolidation of defense data in a centralized cloud repository, and that cloud repository being primarily provided by an outside provider, not um, created and run and administered by the Department of Defense. Now, that said, there are a lot of clouds um, enterprises that are already occurring within the Department of Defense. Um, some of the services have contracted contracts for their data um, that sits with different cloud providers. The um, intelligence community leaned forward at the beginning on the cloud, and so they actually already have contracts for cloud services that are provided by outside um, civilian providers. So we talk a lot about JEDI because it's a really large contract. I think it's in the $8 billion category. 
But this is happening um, at different levels within the DOD as well. What is unique about this is the centralization of data um, and how big that data centralization would be. And I realize this is really getting into the weeds and get complicated, but as we sit here in the heart of Silicon Valley, how do you basically integrate these new technologies? Um, yeah, this is a real challenge, and I think this is actually one of the biggest problems that the CIO and a JEDI um, program would have, is that the services all um, kind of own their own data. So... If anybody's ever used a, a DoD computer, they know that just logging on is a, a nightmare, right? And, and each one of these networks are kind of, there's both a locally administered um, set of protocols, but then there's also their service set of protocols. And then there's the DISA, which is kind of the, the DoD enterprise protocols. And so we in the DoD don't do a great job of managing our own blue data. It sits in a lot of different locations, and it can be a bit confusing. And this is a real um, difficulty. This is probably the biggest challenge with centralizing um, the data, is that each one of these data fiefdoms are owned by different organizations, different services, um, and they don't always um, share with each other. They're not built to share with each other. In fact, in some ways, these services are built to compete against each other. And so that's probably one of the biggest challenges. Um, I think we've seen a lot of forward movement in the centralization of data in the intelligence sphere. So in a lot of ways, we're much better with red data than we are with our own blue data. Um, and for me, every time we get people get very excited about artificial intelligence, I just think back to, yeah, that's really sexy and cool, but... In order to do that with our own data, we have to do the really boring stuff, just like basic data management. Um, and that's just a very, very difficult thing to do because of the bureaucracies and institutions that are built kind of on top of the data. Well, let me take your words. Why did you find this to be so, quote, sexy and cool? <laughs> cyber or AI? Both. You know, I, I came to cyber because I couldn't understand its impact on international stability. And I'm drawn to puzzles, things that aren't easy to understand. And the more I delved into trying to understand the impact that cyber operations and cyber vulnerabilities would play on when and why states go to war, the the less I could see a clear answer. And I think that we haven't really resolved that. In some ways, we've jumped past it. Anybody who's talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning has kind of said, you know, said, all right, we've figured out cyber vulnerabilities. And that's not quite true. So I think we haven't really, we still don't understand um, what the impact of cyber operations will be on when and why we go to war and who wins those wars. And so I'm just very interested in in puzzles like that. Um, It's also kind of fascinating because we deal with it every day. So it's not like nuclear weapons, where it's this kind of very um, esoteric, there's just a few people that that are interacting, um, it's never used. I mean, cyber operations, it's fascinating that there is this puzzle about its impact, and yet it happens all the time. And I think that's a really kind of fascinating and interesting place to be. And I realize you're in the classroom a lot, but uh, I'm going to give you a challenge. So Jacqueline Schneider has been offered a class here at Stanford or any other school to teach these issues. Give us the mission statement. What's the priority that you want to focus on? I think it would be really wonderful to have um, more learning on cybersecurity at the strategic level. So there's a lot of work that's being done at the tactical and the technical. But to look at where does cybersecurity really affect the big things about international politics, uh, war, trade, economic competition, international institutions, and digital technologies impact each of these really important questions, you know. 
have they changed the balance of power? Are some states more able to coerce in the digital age than other states? I think these are really important questions, and that's where, I mean, when I was at the Naval War College, that was kind of where we wanted our students to think was, because um, these were officers, and you can give them technical knowledge, but what you really want to give them is strategic, because the technical will change. But giving them build to think through these really difficult and challenging problems to make the right policies, to buy the right weapons, to execute operations the correct way, that's really what you want them to leave at least a, a professional military education institution with. And you wrote about this in an October 1st op-ed for the Washington Post dealing with uh, the strikes in the Saudi oil fields and whether or not such uh, cyber operations would deter Iran. Mm. So put that into practicality. Yes, that was a really interesting um, situation because um, you have this ongoing crisis occurring with Saudi Arabia, and it's a it's a conventional crisis. You know, it's not a cyber crisis. Um, and at the same time, in the United States, we are debating the use of cyber operations within exactly these type of crises. So, in some ways, it's this like strange natural experiment to try out things that the U.S. is working on in its strategy. And what I was advocating in that article was the use of cyber operations to decrease the Iranian ability to conduct cyber. And I was arguing against using cyber operations as a deterrent or signaling mechanism to keep Iran from taking these other kind of more conventional strikes like cruise missile and drone attacks or attacking tankers. And I argued that um, the use of cyber operations as signaling is flawed in two ways. One, it's ineffective because it creates virtual effects. And the effects, if it creates physical effects, there are two or three cascading layers down because it's hard to see, it's difficult to attribute, that it's a very ineffective signal. And this is actually what we've seen in war games. The cyber operations are used as signals over and over again. They're either not picked up on or they're kind of ignored. And so I argued, one, it's ineffective. And I argue, number two, that um, the use of cyber specifically to target critical infrastructure um, is potentially destabilizing for the U.S.'s decision to use cyber operations that they think are underneath a threshold of strategic operations. So, I, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. If you want to conduct a lot of cyber operations and say it's not escalatory, you can't then use it specifically to create strategic effects, i.e., um, influence their domestic population. So, um, so I was arguing for the use of cyber operations more tied into either conventional campaigns or to actively degrade the Iranians' ability con to conduct cyber, which in the midst of all this crisis is happening. The Iranians are conducting an elevated cyber campaign against the United States and its allies and partners in the Middle East. Your experience, obviously, in the Air Force, but is there a synergy in the U.S. military on cybersecurity and cyber technology among the branches, among the Army, mm. the Air Force, Marines, Navy, Coast Guard? Well, it's a really interesting question. Cyber is very joint. Um, it's a, It's very purple. And if you look at um, the cyber mission forces, which sit underneath Cyber Command, they are a truly joint force, um, led by members of the Army and the Air Force right now, but tasked, they've been led by the Navy before, they're tasked with a very joint defend the nation kind of mission. And um, that is the most joint element of cyber. But each of the services bring their own culture to cyber. And so as you watch the development of cyber within each of the services, you see them taking on um, what we refer to in military innovation as their mask of war. There's a really great book called Masks of War. It was written in the 70s, still applicable today. And if you look at the Air Force, the Air Force, the way they think of cyber is kind of like the way they think of space. 
it's a it's got its own platforms, its own weapons, and it kind of stands alone. And the way they've organized is that way. The Army, Army's all about um, the infantry and being on the ground. And so you see that they're trying to integrate cyber really at the bottom-up level, really within their organic infantry units. You see cyber really, like, how does my infantry member um, conduct its mission? And then the Navy, the Navy's always... Um, I'm sorry, Navy. Um, can we shoot it off a ship? <laughs> so, so if you look at the way the Navy has been thinking about it, a lot of it is like, how do we like put this on our existing vessels, and then how do we use it to create effect? Um, now, Admiral White's at the fleet right now and um, leading the fleet. And I think he would. I think he has maybe a different opinion. He had more of a joint background, um, but it, the Marines are a little bit more like the Army. You know, this is needs to be embedded at the unit. So it's interesting um, how that has the different cultures of the services are manifesting into kind of different directions that they go with. Um, with cyber, but part of that's intentional. So there are different target sets that have been delegated to each service. So if we are looking at attacks against enemy air defenses, that's the Air Force's primary mission. But that's the Air Force's primary mission in general, so that's a good place to put it. So some of this is their culture. Some of this is we, we did actually kind of divvy out these capabilities to these specific services because we knew that's what they were good at. Our audience includes generals, admirals, and senior Pentagon officials. So for those listening to this conversation, you would tell them what? I would say um, to stop thinking about cyberspace operations as primarily a deterrence function. To start thinking about cyber operations as a zone of contestation that's happening day to day. To think about it more as counterintelligence and less as a strategic attack. And then to think about how to integrate cyber operations within conventional campaigns in a meaningful way. So let me turn to your story. Born and raised in San Antonio, Texas, you got accepted to Columbia University, which is not a cheap school to go to. No. You decided to join the Air Force ROTC program. Why? I needed to pay for college. My parents said, that is fantastic you got into Columbia. Now, how are you going to pay for it? And there are very few actual scholarships that cover that much money. So the Air Force offered me a scholarship. I had no idea what I was getting into. I took it, signed my contract September 10th. September 11th, the world changed. September 10th, 2001. Yes. What were you thinking that day and the next day? The day before, I was thinking stupid college student things, you know, oh, I got to get up, oh, I mean, life felt um, normal. And then September 11th, I mean, I was not at Ground Zero. I was up at, you know, at the Upper West Side. But you were but, in New York. But even on the Upper West Side of New York, you could smell it. And this fog, which wasn't a fog, it was debris, was on top of everything. And there was this sense, I remember this palpable sense of, oh, my God. Is this our World War III? I remember walking into Spanish class. You know those situations where you're in a crisis and you don't know what to do, so you do what you always do? So I went to Spanish class, and that was when we found out about the Pentagon. And I just remember this chill coming over me and feeling like, oh, my God, we are at war. And I, I think that that's, um, that's something that uh, the generation coming up doesn't understand, um, the, the, the sense of fear and the vulnerability We've, I've never felt that before or since, but it was a very palpable moment. And I think for those of us who 
were early adults when September 11th happened. So much of how we view the world and how we understand the world comes through the lens of those experiences in, in those days. Do you think this generation gets it, understands what we're facing? I don't think they understand the decisions that we made in 2001. That's good and bad. You know, it's bad because it you feel like, oh, man, you have to empathize. You have to understand. If you don't understand the way in which those decisions are made, you're not going to be able to understand when things happen similarly in the future. Um, but in a good way, they have more of a – they did have a clean slate, right? So they see the world um, in a way that is uh, in some ways less complex than how we saw the world. Um, and that's useful. I think the, the, the interaction of the two is, is useful. Let me conclude with this question, because as you look back at the 20th century that included two world wars, Vietnam and a Cold War that came to an end in the late 1980s, as you look at what your children, now three and six, will inherit in the 21st century, based on all that we've talked about here today, what will they inherit? What will this century look like in terms of the threats that we're facing and the challenges, particularly with cybersecurity and cyber warfare? I worry about that a lot. Um, I worry about the inundation of information for for children as they're growing up. The um, I worry about the the emotional and societal effects of digital of too much digital connectivity. I I see promise in some of this technology. I hope that the proliferation of digital technologies leads to better healthcare, that leads to cures for diseases that we never thought was possible. I hope that for my children. I hope that we can use technology to solve climate change and to solve the economic repercussions of things of the Industrial Revolution. Um, but sometimes all I see is the, the danger. I see, um, I see the difficulty in understanding what is truth. Um, that worries me. I see a world that um, is faced with um, climate threats and also a huge collective action problem. So um, I hope that my children see less conflict, um, but I think it's only if we're able to use technology to solve these bigger problems. I think if we don't solve the problem, the economic problems of inequality, of um, changes in the climate, that we will see more war. Um, and that the digital, instead of seeing digital promise, you'll see these digital technologies used for creating um, unrest uh, and, and war. And so I, we could go either way. I hope here in Silicon Valley what they end up doing is investing in the types of technologies that benefit the human race, the, the, like, like sewage. You know, I'd like, the, I'd like them to invest in things like indoor plumbing, not actual indoor plumbing, but, you know, the, the digital version that brings everybody to a better place and less about these convenience technologies which are increasingly being used as weapons of warfare to influence people's opinions and to be more divisive and to lead towards conflict. And you view that as part of your mission here? You know, in a small way. I mean, these are big, big problems. Um, I'm hoping to just help a little bit. Jacqueline Schneider. A veteran of the U.S. Air Force and now a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution here at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Thank you for your time. 